What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 35 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respects to elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. Today we're speaking with two guests, Andy Matushak and George Zonios, about the topic of spaced repetition software. Before I introduce our guests, I thought it might be helpful to give a brief introduction to the idea of spaced repetition software, a concept which is likely to be quite new for some listeners. In ERRR episode 17 with Adrian Simpson, Adrian introduced us to the Hungarian word for education, oktatash. Now, if we try to learn an unfamiliar word like this one, a single exposure is very unlikely to be sufficient for us to retain it over the long term. In fact, without revisiting it, it's quite likely that listeners had completely forgotten the word by the end of my discussion with Adrian. I know that I had. The way to circumvent this, of course, is to revisit the word again at a later stage. There are more things we can do, such as connect a new word to previous knowledge, make a mnemonic, etc. But irrespective of how we try to encode the word into memory in the first place, we'll still benefit from revisiting and retrieving that memory over time. With each excessive exposure to content, the rate at which we forget that content slows until the point that durable memories are formed. Doing this, the act of reviewing or retrieving content over expanding time intervals in an attempt to build these durable memories is called spaced repetition. Spaced repetition software is software that uses a series of mathematical rules and guidelines or algorithms to try to work out the best time for us to review a given piece of information. By way of example, you may be familiar with the idea of using flashcards to remember information with a question on one side and the answer on the other. The most popular form of spaced repetition software, such as the freely available program Anki, can be thought of as a digital equivalent to this practice of using physical flashcards. Users see the front of the card, try to recall the answer, check the answer, then rate how strong their memory was of that piece of information. Based upon their self-rating of the memory for this card, the software's algorithm schedules that card for review sometime in the future, which may be anything from only minutes later to years in the future. In this episode, Andy, George and I discuss our personal use of space repetition software, as well as our attempts at bringing its power to the wider world. This episode is different from others in the past in that I share a little more than usual about my own engagement with the topics discussed. Now, a little bit about our two guests. Andy Matushak is a software engineer, designer and researcher. He spent time working for Apple, Khan Academy, and he's now engaged in several projects and initiatives, one of which is Quantum Country, which we discuss in this episode. Andy's article, Why Books Don't Work, asserts that the way that we engage with traditional media, such as books and lectures, often doesn't lead to durable memories. And this article, Why Books Don't Work, is a stimulus for our discussion today. Our second guest is George Zonios. George is a school teacher, software designer, and passionate advocate for bringing spaced repetition to mainstream learning. During his teaching career, he's been highly focused upon utilizing effective learning strategies in the classroom. And this has resulted in him designing and building two spaced repetition software platforms, Vulcan Tutor and Dendro. 
This is a bit of a geek out episode in which Andy, George and I discuss the ins and outs of space repetition and the software that can support it. We also talk about applications for the classroom and some of the benefits and barriers that we've each faced in this realm. I really hope that you enjoy it. Before we jump in, a reminder that if you're keen to, you can go onto ollilovell.com and sign up for my mailing list, through which I share blogs, podcasts, and more from the world of education. Also, I wanted to say a big thank you to the handful of patrons I have who continue to contribute a small donation each month to cover the ongoing production of the show. I recently did some calculations and discovered that the podcast cost me $1,018 last year for audio production, SoundCloud hosting, and the books I needed to buy in order to bring the ERRR podcast to the ears of listeners. As such, any contribution to covering these costs is immensely appreciated. There's a Patreon button at ollilovell.com or you can go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to sign on to support the show. And with that, let's jump straight into this episode of the ERRR podcast with Andy Matushak and George Zonios. Andy Matushak, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Hey, thanks so much. So, the first question we usually ask Andy is, if you meet someone new and they say, hey Andy, what is it that you do? What's your answer? I try to invent new kinds of tools to expand what people can think and do. Very broad, very broad. Um, Could you give us a bit of a history of your career to date? I guess the the longest strand is uh, in technology, making open source software back in the early 2000s and then was at Apple in the early iPhone days for a while, where I, I started doing a more design-focused work. And so at, at Apple, I worked on touch and gesture and animation, all these kind of core elements of the dynamic medium that uh, was evolving there. Got me really excited about um, trying to use dynamic media for uh, more meaningful purposes than, uh, than we were doing. And then um, I'd been writing a lot about education at the time. And and a conversation with the folks at Khan Academy, uh, we kind of came to an arrangement where I, with a, a colleague from Apple, would begin a, a research group there. So I was there at Khan Academy for about five years, doing experiments and prototypes. And about six months ago, I left, and I've been doing independent research around some of the same themes, but kind of broadening the scope from education narrowly to kind of tools for thought more generally, and and for adults as well. Very cool. Very cool. Another question we like to ask at the start as a bit of a grounding for the further discussion, obviously understanding of purposes is very, very important. So to your mind, what is the purpose of school-based education? Hmm. There's several ways I can answer that. There's my assessment of what society views as its purposes. There's, there's maybe uh, what I think it's I don't know, its purpose actually is as, as a day-to-day fact in, I don't know, say the 80th percentile case and maybe like what I would like it to be. Um, would you like me to just kind of speak to all of those? Yes, please. Or? That'd be great. Okay. Kieran Egan in an educated mind has a, a breakdown of the kind of ostensible and conflicting purposes of education that I really enjoy. He describes it as really having three branches. One is kind of the platonic branch. Uh, it's how Plato saw education and its purposes. And, and that is that um, th- there are these eternal and essential ideas that are outside of man. And man, by learning about them, comes into contact with the eternal, with the beautiful, and kind of becomes, uh, becomes greater. And it puts the priority on 
say, expert-defined curricula, uh, that the question of like what is to be learned is a question for, say, the elders. And the, the role of the, the coach in, in this context is kind of as a master or, or a guru or something. They're, they're the keeper of the knowledge that the representative of that kind of continuity, uh, and they're like assisting you, the student, who's ignorant of that knowledge uh, in, in coming to be part of that. The second and conflicting bent we, we could date to Rousseau or Dewey, and that's one that emphasizes the development of the self, the child and the individual. The purpose of education in this context is to help the child become most themselves, whatever that is, and to uh, support them in their journey of development. In this context, the, the role of the teacher is more as a, say, facilitator or coach, not really for them to express strong opinions about what is to be learned. They succeed if the child self-actualizes, whatever you choose to interpret that to mean. Uh, and then the final bent is also a very important one, which is that it just has a significant uh, societal purpose. So we use education to pass along social norms and values, to convey stories, uh, it enacts oral history, and it kind of gives people a first chance to play out uh, what it is to participate in, in society or the culture that, that contains the institution. I'll kind of pause there before moving on to other tracks. Is, is that kind of what you wanted to be hearing? Super interesting, Andy. And if people want to hear more about that and hear, hear Kieran Egan speak about that, they can jump back to episode 15 in which we speak okay. to Kieran Egan about his imaginative education framework. So in terms of what you'd, you'd like to see as the purpose of education, Andy, share that with us. I don't have vociferous answers here. I, I have tentative answers here. I have reservations about each of the perspectives that I just shared. But what I'm really interested in is mm, society having the tools to create and continuously renegotiate the institutions that make sense moment to moment for its participants. Um, so, for instance, the mm, kind of societal value sharing role of school in fairly individualistic states like the United States, a lot of that takes place in the school because the country doesn't have these kind of strong venues for communicating cultural norms or values, whereas in other more collectivist countries, that kind of thing might happen in, say, church or in dance for Frerie or something like that, like a, like a dance club. So I, I'm interested in moving some of the kind of social communication roles to other institutions, which can have their boundaries move a little more fluidly than in these kind of centrally defined school institutions. And in terms of Rousseau's angle and Dewey's angle, I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm, schools are not at all set up to do that or very rarely set up well to do that. Uh, there are some serious conflicts. Support the development of the individual. Yeah. You, you'll occasionally find schools often you know, framed as schools for the gifted, which, which are emphasizing that uh, when they're not schools for the gifted and, and they're kind of just trying to be trained or experimental, reform-minded schools, uh, they, they tend to mm, try to do things halfway where, okay, yes, like we're going to have big projects and you're going to kind of you know, choose your project maybe and we'll have facilitators. Uh, and then also there are certain standards that you have to meet uh, because the state requires it. And uh, the latter really distorts and corrupts the former. It's very difficult to build the frame of my role in life is to take my own ideas very seriously and to to play them out and to acquire the skills that are necessary to pursue those ideas on the one hand, when at the same time, you really have to hold 
my role is to uh, kind of be a consumer of the say queue of knowledge that is to be learned provided me by uh, by some authority those things seem in conflict one way to resolve that conflict might be to essentially separate those institutions so that um you know maybe what that looks like is a much wider after school program type stuff relative to well, you know what if the school day is two hours long i don't claim to have answers here to be honest i i've shifted a lot of my attention away from these <laughs> away from these types of questions and problems precisely because i i view this as a morass that is unlikely to be solved anytime soon or um, solving it will require some fairly fundamental new ideas which are unlikely to be discovered within this context okay this ties very much into what we're talking about later and i feel like it's a good time to to go a little bit more into it so so tell us a little bit about how you are interested and how you are taking a sidestep from these challenging and seemingly insurmountable debates and trying to approach education in alternate ways. Please give us some insight into how you are trying to sidestep that morass, as you referred to it. I don't see a way to sidestep it. I don't think it's possible, for instance, for me to say, uh, well, what I really care about is improving schools defined in that sense. And the way that I'm going to do that is to like go over here and, and work really hard on this thing. I, I think I really, I really have to kind of shift frame more significantly than that. So I, I don't really view my work as being about trying to solve educational problems, though uh, I think that it may end up doing that. What I'm really interested in is some of the aspirations which underlie, say, you know, that Dewey and characterization. Why do we have education in the first place? The answer that resonates most with me is that, say, self-development angle. And it's one that does not end with school. It's one which uh, you know, every knowledge worker needs to do every day to be effective. And every artist needs to do to create a spectacular work that moves us. And everyone who does anything that has significant meaning to themselves and to their community needs to be doing constantly. So what I really care about is finding ways to enable people to do more of whatever it is they find intrinsically meaningful. Cool. Got it. That's great. We'll dive into that a bit more. So our, our discussion today is kind of, the impetus for it is, is your article, Why Books Don't Work. And maybe to start off with, I'll just read a short excerpt from the start of it that I think kind of captures, captures what you're, you communicate in the article quite well. So you write, books are easy to take for granted, not any specific book, I mean the form of a book. Paper or pixels, it hardly matters. Words in lines on pages in chapters. Oh, that rhymes. Did you mean for that to rhyme? No, I just wanted the meter to kind of... Say. It's good. It, no, it's good. I just, I, I just realized that for the first time when reading it out loud. And at least for nonfiction books, one implied assumption at the foundation is people absorb knowledge by reading sentences. This last idea so invisibly defines the medium that it's hard not to take for granted, which is a shame because, as we'll see, it's quite mistaken. When do you first start thinking about how books don't work in this way? I, I'm not sure that there's a precise boundary to that. I, I think as far back as maybe 2011, when I started sketching and prototyping roughly around educational technology, I was really entranced by ideas of, say, our, our constructivist grandfathers and very averse 
to more transmissionist instructional perspectives. I, I recognize that they have their place. And, and since then, I, I've come to understand more about when they have that place. But um, one thing I love about working here in San Francisco is that I'm surrounded by just vividly creative people. And it's very difficult to go to a dinner, go to a party, have a conversation where there's not just radiating ideas everywhere. It's creative force, whether it's art, whether it's scientific insight, uh, even entrepreneurial insight. And I don't think that comes from passivity. So um, starting around 2014, when I went to Khan Academy, one of the things that my group is very interested in was um, what we call dynamic media. I'll try to characterize that a little bit. This is not a, not a tech podcast. Okay, so pictures on walls are static. I can paint a painting and I can put it on the wall or I can print it out in a book. And you, the participant, have to bring it to life. So if I paint a vivid scene, uh, you can look at it and you can you know, imagine yourself there. And by contrast, dynamic media behave and respond. And um, they're a more recent uh, discovery, at least as a, as a wide distributed medium. And computing technology is an excellent way to distribute it. But dynamic media, in, insofar as, mm, say, group facilitation is a, is a medium that one can become an expert at, or, say, write media artifacts, which others can consume and then uh, perform. You know, someone facilitating a really good meeting is, is also like an interesting kind of a dynamic medium. Anyway, software eats the world. And a cool thing about software is that distribution is free. Uh, free marginal cost. And it would be really nice to explore what it means to have media that uh, behave and respond in place of those which did not. That's a very technocentric viewpoint. Like, what happens if we use this technology for this new thing? I don't find that very compelling. Uh, what I find more compelling is to look at problems, challenges, barriers. One problem, challenge, barrier for learners, I saw over and over again as, as I spent time around kids. And then I saw in professionals and, and creatives as I spent time with them, was in juggling the metacognitive demands of the tasks that they were performing simultaneously with the tasks themselves, particularly when the tasks were already at the edge of their abilities. A great thing about dynamic media is that they can behave and respond. And that's exactly what is necessary uh, to provide supports for uh, kind of metacognitive labor where that might be, say, monitoring or self-regulation, executive planning, these kinds of meta tasks. Now, we can have a textbook which has, say, advice. Here's advice on how to read this chapter. Do a, a quick read first. And as you read, maybe like underline some stuff, highlight some stuff. And then uh, do a subsequent read. And for everything that you underline, like go and look up those words. And if they seem interesting to you, like go and read the encyclopedia entry. And if you feel like you don't understand something, then like here are references for each of those things and so on. So it's like a little program that you're meant to execute. And that program is kind of dead. Uh, you're, you're meant to rehydrate it. And this is true in textbooks, in videos, in figures and diagrams, everything like this. So coming all the way back around to the answer to your question, I guess I wouldn't characterize myself as being only interested in these questions around books. It's more just like books are a very compelling example of one narrow slice of possibility in this broader space. 
Fantastic. And this broader space is exactly what we're exploring today. And at this point, I'd love to bring in our second guest, George Zonios. George, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks for having me. And Andy's waving. George, what do you believe is the purpose of school-based education? So, as a teacher, I have quite a similar perspective on education as Andy, except I look at it maybe from a more... um, less of a theoretical standpoint and and not that Andy's was entirely theoretical, but as in what do I do as a teacher in the classroom with students and and so what does that mean for their lives? So the way I think of my answer to this question is that School-based education should nurture that natural love of learning that we're all born with. Like you see all kids have this love of learning and creativity. Ken Robinson talks about this on his TED Talk, which is a very popular TED Talk, about how schools kill creativity. I think ideally schools should nurture creativity, nurture that love of learning. And I think we see naturally that kids have, and when I say kids, I mean all the way up to say the age of 18 when they finish school, they have different interests and yet the curriculum, the tracks that they're all following are pretty much the same for everyone. So, I mean, that's sort of characterizing a view of it, but I think the question that I like to ask myself is what happens to the students when we stop pushing them? So when they're in my classroom and I'm using the carrots and the sticks and the advice and the guides and all those things to help them learn. Um, Let's say I'm teaching them year eight algebra. What I want to know is when they leave my classroom, when they're on holidays or when they go to their next year level with another teacher, when they've left school, do they continue to learn year eight algebra? Do Do they move on from that or are they even interested in it? Do they like it? So what happens when we stop pushing them? I think the answer to that question is often nothing. I think that's a very uncomfortable answer for teachers. But I think it's often the true answer and the more we look at that and the more we ask ourselves what happens when we stop pushing, the more we're going to move towards a better model for education. That's great. That's great. Could you give us a little um, background of your career today? Sure. Mine's a lot shorter than Andy's. I started working a lot more recently. So I studied engineering and went into teaching in 2013 and I got interested in this area of education and strategies around effective learning around 2006 when I came across this program called SuperMemo, which is where I learned about spaced repetition and a lot of strategies surrounding it. And in 2013, when I became a teacher, I wanted to work out how can I actually implement these fairly unusual strategies in a classroom, things that I hadn't experienced my teachers helping me with I didn't know of other teachers who did them, and I wanted to find out how to use them effectively in a classroom. So since 2013, in the classroom, I've been teaching and experimenting with spaced repetition and interleaving and other strategies that I've learned about through books and research and which I've tried in my own learning. I think that's a core part of this is I've been using spaced repetition a lot in my own learning, and I realize it's extremely effective, but... How do you get someone else to use it? So that's been my sort of driving force in my career to date. 
Thanks, George. And maybe you've provided a great segue for us because I, I wanted to have an opportunity because each of us are avid users of space repetition software. So I just wanted to create a space in this interview for us each to take a couple of minutes to kind of explain for each of us what that looks like. So just briefly for listeners, space repetition software is simply software that takes content that you've learned and provides you with multiple exposures to that content over expanding time intervals um, in line with the, what we know about how memory degrades over time and how stronger memories degrade slower, etc. So maybe Andy, did you want to start us off with just a brief overview of what your space repetition software regime looks like? And mm-hmm. you know, feel free to share with us how that's changed over time in any significant ways or anything like that. And keeping in mind that probably many listeners have never used any type of space repetition software or anything like that before. Great. Okay, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. The important thing to know about space repetition really is that it, it looks like flashcards and it, it, like it really feels like flashcards initially, but there's this hidden thing underneath the surface, which is that it has this very exponential property, namely that you can basically, it, it's a flashcard system where you can essentially shovel almost unlimited numbers of flashcards into the thing and still maintain all of them as memorized. So I have a, a very common use case for these systems is memory. I use a system called Anki for that. And I have many thousands of flashcards memorized, no, no problem. And, and I find that um, I'm primarily limited by the rate at which I can add them. So for memory-oriented stuff, I use it to process and understand knowledge that I'm consuming alongside notes that I'm taking. So more recently, I have some um, kind of homebrew systems for integrating my own notes into my space repetition systems so that uh, insights that I'm deriving from things kind of be- become themselves things that get memorized. Could you give us an example? So what's, what's something that you're consuming at the moment and what's the kind of the flow of that information and how does it get broken down and, and pieced up and end up as Anki cards? Yeah. So I recently read a piece of fiction called Lila, an Inquiry into Ethics um, by Robert Persig. It's the second book. It's the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance Guy. And um, it has a bunch of passages about the author's note-taking practice, which were of interest to me because I'm kind of working on experimental note systems. So as I read those, I tried to turn the insights from those passages into concepts. So for instance, this is a work of kind of fiction. It's not really, it's, I don't know, it's narrative nonfiction. And the author is describing he has these, these slips that work in a particular way, and he likes something about them. And, you know, he kind of describes the way that it makes him feel. I read that and I say, ah, the author has an interesting point to make. This is that um, because the way that he takes notes is not hierarchical and not uh, sequential, that has this characteristic for him uh, that he values. And so into my note system goes, you know, non-sequential notes make append operations easier or something of this kind. And a couple of paragraphs about that, that's one note. And uh, within that is, say, a couple of pairs of questions and answers about the implications of that which both form the content of the note and are also uh, details that get memorized. Now, one of the um, uses of spaced repetition that I find very valuable is to use it uh, not just for memory, but really as just a general kind of programmable attention. So I also have tools to use spaced repetition to return to certain overarching questions or to force myself to um, apply certain ideas to a situation around me or to create an example of something. So I use it as kind of like a general purpose way to program my attention. Cool. So in your day-to-day practice, 
how much time do you spend on Anki and how much time do you spend attending to the other tools that you've created that help to focus your attention and in what order those two things come? Uh, it's, it's, it's all very fluid. The tools kind of talk to each other. I spend roughly 15 minutes total doing like what the tools tell me to do for, I, I guess, the primary thing. There's, there's a couple of sequences of activities that are potentially much longer, the writing prompts mm. and kind of creative prompts. And, and those I use to kind of drive some subset of my primary creative work for the day. I also have spaced repetition-based systems for reading, and those get used however much I'm reading in a given day. What do they look like? Highly experimental. So all this stuff, like this, this is these are research systems, right? So I, I'm I'm building and living in these to understand these ideas better. But the the big picture observation that derives from and extends ideas Peter Wozniak expresses around incremental reading tries to make them more ergonomic, say and somewhat more integrative with the other kind of knowledge work systems I have on note-taking. I'm less interested in kind of pure memory approaches than that system suggests. I'm much more interested in kind of programming the way that inputs flow to me. I want to be reading a certain amount of new academic material. I want to be exposing myself to stuff from different fields, say, Differing mediums as well. I, I have full-length books that are part of the system, and I have papers that are part of the system, and I have, say, web articles that are part of the system. And I need to kind of arrange my attention relative to those things in a unified fashion. Thanks, Andy. Super interesting. And it's really interesting how you've kind of incorporated space repetition not only to review content, but also to schedule when you engage with content, which I think is a, a quite original way of, of doing it. George, let's let's hear from you. What does your SRS approach look like at the moment? So, as I said earlier, I started with uh, Super Memo in 2006. This was actually at a time where I'd just finished high school myself, and I was interested in education. I was looking up like tips and tricks and study hacks and things like that, like how can I learn better? And I came across Super Memo, and it was essentially the most effective thing that I've found still to date. And it introduced me to spaced repetition, but it actually introduced me also to incremental reading. So the incremental learning approach is essentially one where you don't try and learn everything at once. Um, my term for it is layered learning. Like I think that sort of paints a nice picture of you don't try and learn everything at once. You learn in layers, like you're painting a wall and you do the first coat and you let it dry and then you let it sink in and you come back later and paint a second coat. And that sort of has a much better effect than just chucking a whole heap of paint on the wall and just seeing which part of it dries. So in Super Memo, which is the primary program that I've used all these years, um, what I do is I import entire web articles um, or PDFs and sometimes YouTube videos. And so this is just like, they could be really long articles or videos or whatever. And I'll just start going through them. And let's say I read the first sentence or the first paragraph and there's something interesting there. I will clip that out into a separate note. And that's a note which Supermemo will schedule for me to review later. So basically I found something useful. I go, okay, I wanna think about this more but I want to come back to it with fresh eyes. And so that's what that lets me do. Now, as I keep reading an article, 
I might find that, you know, the next three paragraphs are just saying the same thing in different ways and it's useful but not really adding anything new, so I won't clip out any more notes. And then I might decide that, okay, I do want to come back to that other note that I clipped out. I want to come back to that later. But right now, I've sort of had enough of this article. So at that point, I move on to the next piece. And what happens with the rest of the article that I didn't finish reading is Supermemo schedules that to come back to me later. So it's an incremental process where you just sort of take little bites at a time and you keep coming back to it to digest it slowly over time. Now, it's a really different approach to reading. It's a really sort of alien approach for a lot of people to, to, to do that because if you keep coming back to a long article in little bits at a time, it might take you months to actually finish the article. It might take you years. I literally have some articles in there that I put in years ago and I haven't finished reading. So then you might say, what's the point of, you know, taking bite, little bites of something and not actually getting the big picture? Well, what happens is you actually get the big picture by reading several of these articles in parallel. So let's say I'm reading about something to do with cardiovascular health, and I put in one article from one author, and I put in another article from another author, and another one from another author. I find that by reading these things in parallel, just a little bit from each, I get the big picture without even reading one article. I see that there's several ways of thinking about this, several levels of thinking about this, maybe the biological level, maybe the fitness level, and so on. And so that is applying spaced repetition to the comprehension stage. And I think it's really important not just to think about spaced repetition as a way of just memorizing facts, but actually helping us build a big picture in our minds of understanding a topic by actually like building a puzzle. If you can imagine a big table with a whole bunch of puzzle pieces scattered everywhere, you don't just suddenly build it. You put in a piece by piece, maybe you come back tomorrow, put in the corner, come back after a few days and and build the clouds in the middle, or you just sort of, you don't get it all straight away. And it's just this patient approach of trying to get the really big picture. And so this is especially useful for complex topics. I would say the more complex a topic is, and the more there is to learn, the more this approach is useful. If you're just learning something really simple, go ahead, read the article, you're done, that's it. But if you want to learn about a field and you want to master a whole field or several, that's where it becomes extremely useful to integrate all this knowledge together. So I guess that's talking more about the philosophy behind how I use it, which I actually think is just as important as the mechanics because that, that's the why. In terms of the mechanics, it interleaves the reading of those articles and the creation of those notes with questions that I make from those notes. So let's say, just as a last bit of how I use space repetition, Let's say I've clipped out a little paragraph. Next time I see that paragraph, I realize, you know, this is saying something that I could say in 10 words. So I just really whittle that down. I just shape it into a much shorter little nugget of knowledge. And then that represents what I actually wanted to take from that paragraph. And then finally, it's all about engaging and re-engaging with knowledge over the long term. So if I then see that little sentence again in, let's say, three weeks, it's already nice and perfect. It's already at its finished state. There's nothing for me to do with it. And that's a dangerous point because essentially I found some really useful knowledge and I've stopped engaging with it. And that's why creating a question at that point is so useful because 
every time that question comes back, you're just forced to re-engage by answering the question. Cool. Thanks, George. At this point, I'll talk a little bit about my own experience, and then we'll talk about more applications of space repetition in the broader community, not just individually. So I started using space repetition software in 2014. At the start of the year, I set myself the challenge of trying to learn Mandarin Chinese in a year. I booked tickets to China at the end of the year, and I just got really hard into studying. Um, got inspired by kind of Tim Ferriss's approach, Scott Young, you, you Without English kind of stuff, things like that. Read Dan Willingham for the first time. Just had my mind blown by all these new ideas. So I, I would say I, I downloaded a lot of decks. So Anki has this great functionality where just for listeners online, if you want to learn Mandarin Chinese, you can just go on and download decks that have people saying stuff with the recordings in Mandarin and English and stuff like that. So I just got really deep into it there. Another great thing about Anki is you can check your data. So I jumped on this morning and I checked my data, found out that I've been using Anki now for 5.3 years. I've studied on 87% of the days. My average is 58 flashcards per day. I've done 98,695 reviews. And on average, I've studied 8.6 minutes per day. So that just kind of makes it a bit more concrete for listeners, maybe. And what my what my use of Anki generally looks like these days, I've got a series of decks. So decks are like different. I think guess you can think of card decks for listeners. I've got a deck. My main one is education related. I've got some for various languages just for few odd phrases here and there, which are particularly uh, valuable when, for example, I learn work in a very multicultural school and often students will teach me, you know, or something like that, which is like, what percentage did you get in Farsi on your test? So I can ask a kid like when they self-mark what percentage they got and things like that. So just like little phrases like that. Um, I've got people because I really want to, you know, you meet someone once at a party or an event and then you want to re- remember them next time because they love it when you remember them. English English language, things like that. But with education, basically, the podcast pushes me to read books each month, at least one book each month. I do a weekly kind of email out with heaps of articles. And so from the books, I'll clip sections, they'll turn into cards and they'll come back over time. Then when I do my weekly email out, which I know a lot of the listeners to this podcast will be subscribed to, um, every article that I get there, I'll basically put the heading of the article, the author, into Anki. So for me, it's Sometimes if a concept is profound enough, I will put the actual concept in there so that I can, you know, Kieran Egan stuff, for example, so that I can just be like, Kieran Egan, these are his three ideas about education, etc. off the top of my head. But usually in education, at least, I use it as an information management system whereby, you know, if someone says, I don't know, teach professional development or something, I can bring to mind a few names that I know are going to be good leads that I can explore further when I need to come back to it. Or if I'm if I'm coaching a teacher or something, I can say, oh, feedback, we need to work on feedback. I know there's these three articles that are a great place to start. So that's kind of where I'm at with my Anki. In terms of broader applications, now this is a, a part of the discussion that I was really, really keen to get into with you two because you've both built systems because you've felt like the existing systems weren't enough, I assume, to accomplish the goals that you have for the use of SRS more broadly in society. So I thought maybe a good place to start with, I've actually used Anki in my own classroom and, you know, it's had some costs, it's had some benefits. But just briefly, basically how I've been using it is, for example, with Further Maths, which is the lowest level pre-tertiary maths course in Victoria, I use it at the start of every lesson. I've got two 90-minute lessons and 145 each week. For the 90-minute lessons, about the first 30 minutes, we spend using Anki. And Anki for further maths, 
I looked this morning, over the year, we've spent about 12 hours on it and I've only made about 72 cards out of all the content. Some of those cards are quick recall, kind of factual information that I need to be in their long-term memory so that they can access higher order uh, problem solving. But some of them are also kind of quick solve problem types where they have to quickly apply something that I know they'll have to do in an exam and have to revisit. It's been incredibly valuable and I've found since I've started using it because, for example, we usually teach in topics and by the time you get to the end of your exam, the first topic you covered, students will have forgotten a lot of it. So I've found that now after using Anki, as soon as we go into that exam revision at the end of year 12, they still have a lot of the information from the start of the year and they're getting already getting you know 60 70 percent in, in the exam revision and then they crank that right up later on just through the the kind of interleave practice of past exams under time conditions obviously my description here is getting away from the purposes of education that you two were speaking about earlier but you know in education we're trying to achieve lots of goals at the same time but some challenges have been you know students take different times to answer the questions, especially if it's a problem-solving question. So I might have a student finish in 30 seconds. One might take a minute and a half. There's questions about how I use that time in the classroom for the students who are quicker. Students have vastly different abilities to retain the information, I've found, based upon prior knowledge. So you've got your higher-achieving kids getting a bit bored and you've got your lower-achieving ones. You know, Sometimes I just have to take a screenshot of the flashcard that they didn't have time to finish and then print them out and give them back to them during the actual lesson work time. So there's still all these issues. Last year, I had a really motivated physics class. I tried to get them all to use Anki. I'd had them for two years. The first year, I'd use Anki with them. The second year, I tried to scaffold them to use Anki. That fell apart. I either didn't scaffold it well enough or who knows, they just didn't have that motivation or as George said, what happens when you stop pushing? So that fell apart. So I went back to the whole class thing. You know, they all got good results, but still the questions remain. So that's why I was really keen to chat with both of you today because I've, I've tried Anki. I've realized some of the limitations. I've also seen some of the strengths and I'm really keen to hear from each of you where you're going with your design of SRS software. So, George, did you want to tell us about where you're at? You know, you, you've designed two things. You first designed Vulcan Tutor and you've recently designed and built Dendro. So, you know, what precipitated these inventions and, and why did you move from Vulcan Tutor to Dendro and things like that? Give us a bit, paint a bit of a picture for us. So in trying spaced repetition in the classroom, I firstly wanted to try it in the most low cost, like easy to implement way possible, which is, I think, a really important part to actually making it work, not just in your classroom, but in other people's as well. So I wanted to find either a tool or just a way of doing it manually that was going to work for me. And so I tried various approaches. Some of them were just very sort of what you might call haphazard, where it was like, okay, what did we do a few weeks ago? Let's try that again today. And I actually found that to be very useful in and of itself because it's not something that you'd normally plan into your lessons and then sort of spacing that out over time. But it was very, it's sort of like the way you described Anki, using that in the classroom some students would remember things better than others. And so there was never going to be an optimal time for everyone to practice the same thing. So with the existing products like Anki and SuperMemo that I'd come across, they seem to be primarily designed for personal use, individual use, and not so much for a teacher to use with the whole class, especially if you wanted each student to use it individually. So Vulcan Tutor was something that I started in 2017 and 2018. And I built it all around 
inputting curriculum aligned content for the VC chemistry, which is the senior high school chemistry. And I worked with a colleague in a rural school and we both childhood in our classrooms for that year and for the next year. And essentially wanted to see what happens if we put in the actual content that students need to learn for VCE chemistry, but use spaced repetition instead of the normal approach. So there were strengths and weaknesses to that approach. All the content was written by me. And well, actually it was, it was originally all written by me. And then this other teacher also helped and we sort of expanded that content. But essentially the students did not write the content, which is what I think is a key point here because a couple of things emerged. One was that students were able to answer questions correctly, but weren't always able to see all the connections that we wanted them to see. And so one lesson from that was that spaced repetition could form a sort of skeleton of basic backbone, perhaps of basic things that we wanted them to know. And then that skeleton would have to be brought to life, would have to have that flesh and blood added to it through a whole bunch of other activities that we do in the classroom where we'd actually use that knowledge in various different ways. So you couldn't sort of rely on that and say, oh, they're doing really well with their spaced repetition, so they're going to do really well on the exam or they're going to understand this. It was just one piece of the puzzle. But the second thing I learned was that there's a secret ingredient to spaced repetition, which is not in the algorithm. It's not in the maths. It's not in the neuroscience literature or the cognitive psychology literature about spaced repetition, where all these experiments around getting students to practice something and then take a break, having that space, practice it again, and then testing them. The secret ingredient is the motivation. Because essentially, if, if a person is going to learn something for the long term, they've got to practice it for the long term. And if they're going to practice it for the long term, and by long term, we mean after they leave your classroom, they're only going to keep doing that if they want to. Now, the other issue is that if I write some content around what I think is useful for them, and then I say, okay, I'm going to help you at the start, and then after you've got to take over on your own, well, my interests and their interests are not going to necessarily match up very well. So that's why I think it's really important in spaced repetition that the learning be self-directed. In school, I was having trouble seeing exactly how this would work, especially in the senior levels where everything is very regimented and strict and this is what you learn and when you learn it and there's not much choice around it. So that's why I decided to build Dendro, which there's no content in there. I don't put any content in there. It's entirely student-directed and student-driven to decide what they want to learn. It's actually heavily based on Supermemo, but the main differences are that it's, I think, what I've been aiming for is that it's a lot more accessible. It's a lot easier to use. It's web-based. It automatically backs itself up. And it sort of is meant to be a much lighter way to introducing people into this new world than Supermemo, which despite how powerful it is and how great it is, it's just very difficult to use. George, in terms of what you're trying to do with Dendro, you, you previously said kind of make SRS more accessible. Did you want to expand upon that and, and how's it going for you? So I don't think I was clear enough earlier in that the purpose of Dendro is beyond school and high school. I think my target audience is really an older age group who's going to be more likely to 
to pursue that type of self-directed learning. So they might be at university level or researchers or academics or professionals, all those knowledge workers that Andy mentioned. There's so many knowledge workers who are actually taking a very ineffective approach at working with knowledge. So I think there's going to be a sort of, in terms of adopting space repetition, I think one aspect of it is attaining a sort of critical mass where once a certain number of people are using very effective techniques to do their work and other people are not, then you're going to have this gap. And when you're the only person still like riding a horse and everyone's driving a car, then you're going to need to sort of switch to the new approach. And I think that's been happening over the last couple of decades as this technology has been around. There's been Super Memo and Anki, even just developments like Quantum Country and Dendro. I mean, it just indicates that slowly, slowly more people, newer generations are getting interested in developing this idea further. So I think in terms of adoption of spaced repetition, um, that critical mass is, is one side of it. In terms of making it more accessible, well, I think there's some really basic aspects to designing a program to making it easy to use, making it a simple interface. Like when I say basic aspects, what I mean is when people look at Supermemo, they because I, I love the program and I've used it for a long time and I've just initially raved about it to everyone and showed it to everyone. And when they looked at it, they were like, okay, but where's the program? Because this looks like some sort of engineering program or something else. Like, what is this? And it's got a lot of statistics in there. Like Andy was mentioning, it's got a lot of statistics. It's got a lot of things it can measure about your brain. But the question is, which of those numbers is actually motivating? And I am also working on that same problem of looking at ways to represent progress and represent achievement. Because so much of what happens in our memory is actually sort of not accessible to us. It's not intuitive. So one example is when we forget something, we also tend to forget that we even knew it in the first place. So it's like this invisible process that's happening. And if you ask someone if they remember what they read in a book, they'll remember what they remember, but they won't remember what they had forgotten. So there's so much of this process that just happens behind the curtain. And I think just making that, like bringing that into the light and making it visible to people is, is part of it. But also it's, yeah, it's something that I'm still sort of experimenting with, which is to find out which numbers are motivating to people. At the moment, one of the things I'm working on in that area is not just focusing on how much is being memorized, but also measuring the degree of interaction with ideas in the first place. So in Dendro, like Supermemo, you import whole articles. I imported Andy's article on why books don't work, for example, found certain sections interesting. As I capture out bits and rewrite them, Dendro starts recording how much I'm interacting with that. Just interact, just like things like, did I edit it or did I not? Because if you go through, and even if you're just rearranging sentences, even if you're just clipping bits out, that requires an evaluation process where you're like, this is interesting, this is not. This connects with my prior knowledge, this does not. And making those sorts of decisions is a way of interacting. And I think if, unlike books which don't have a, a strong cognitive model and don't have tools built into them, if you use a, a system where just by virtue of sitting there and using the system and you've got three buttons and if you whichever one you click, it's going to help you process that knowledge. 
I think that's a way to make the whole system more accessible. Cool. Just quickly, Andy, why do you use Anki instead of SuperMemo? There's a number of reasons for that. Perhaps the most salient one is that I'm a Mac user. Yep, that's exactly the same reason why I use Anki instead of SuperMemo as well. So that's interesting. Um, but we'll, we might talk about algorithms in a bit, and I'm sure George has something to say in terms of those algorithms as well. Andy, you've taken a pretty different tack with the current iteration of what I've seen of your work anyway. Did you want to tell us about Quantum Country and what you're trying to achieve with it? Sure. So maybe just as framing, the, the risk for me as, as a technologist, as, as kind of my original background, is to have this technocentric perspective of like, so there is this effect called the spacing effect, or there is this pre-existing technology called spaced repetition systems, and how can we make those things better? And it's just kind of a, a matter of practice. I, I, try, I try to like uh, avoid those perspectives and, and instead look at, you know, what are the challenges? What are the, what are the problems? So quantum country is, is a textbook about quantum computation. And quantum computation like quantum mechanics is a topic that's famously very difficult to learn. People make jokes about, you know, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, then you really, you, that means you don't understand it at all. You know, it's this, this kind of self-defeating tautology. There's a lot of reasons why that might be the case. One of them, that seems maybe compelling, <clears throat> is that uh, different fields have different kind of depths of the dependency tree of the topics that are learned. And you can imagine something like learning a language. There's tons of knowledge that's kind of at about the same level, like huge lists of vocabulary words or whatever. And those things don't necessarily depend on each other. You just kind of learn them all and, and those all help. Uh, and then there's other things in highly technical topics like in quantum computation where, boy, like in order to understand something that's pretty simple in the field, you need to grasp like a whole bunch of notation and a whole bunch of terms and a bunch of concepts and whatever. And a challenge for that is that our working memory is pretty limited. And so if grappling with something means holding simultaneously 20 things in our mind at once, we're really not going to be able to do that if all of those are new to us. Essentially, it's a physiological limitation. We can't hold 20 things in working memory, generally speaking. So that's kind of a motivation for a memory perspective. It's not really about durably memorizing things forever so much as like can we make more people able to access this material not being able to remember everything forever is pretty cool too so i i got into space repetition stuff via my colleague michael nielsen who one of the people who got him into it is uh, Gwern branwin who has a, just an absolutely wonderful website and he has a lengthy article on space repetition from the old days and it has a heading a very important motivating heading called if you're so good why aren't you rich it's funny, but I think it's also really serious. The space repetition, it seems like magic. I mean, I use it to durably remember thousands of things. And like I said, it seems like I can just actually throw as many new things into the system as I want. And like the, the limiting factor is not practice time or like my brain's capacity or whatever. It's like the amount of new material that I choose to throw into the system. And that, that's remarkable. And yet at the same time, very few people use this, even though the technology has been around for a long time. So. I think if you're a proponent of this technology, you need a really strong theory about why that is. And my colleague Michael and I have developed a number of those, and Quantum Country kind of expresses ideas about solutions to them. One problem that we often find people have, that you too alluded to, George, um, is that people use space repetition for really foolish purposes. And, and here by foolish, what I mean is inauthentic, 
they they hear that you can memorize whatever you want, so they download this thing and they use it to memorize like all of the capitals of the countries in Africa. And then they'll say like, well, you know, I, I, it didn't really stick for me. So you know, what did you try to learn? All the countries in Africa. Oh, like are are you a scholar of like African geography or something? No, I just you know I thought it would be a way to test the system. Uh, th that's not going to work. And then if if that's not the problem, so like it is something that they're legitimately interested in, I'll talk to them about the questions they're writing. And often they're writing really bad questions. So, so one interesting thing about spaced repetition is that it turns out it's, it's actually really quite hard to write good questions. And it doesn't look like it is because like, it's just flashcards, right? And, you know, question on one side, answer on the other. And the flashcards we're used to from history and our youth and whatever are kind of trivial to write. They're, for instance, vocab words, like translate this Italian word into English. Like, okay, yeah, that, that actually is kind of trivial to write. But to use it to build conceptual understanding, not trivial, really hard to write those questions. So people write really bad questions. That's another problem. A related problem is that people try to download packs of questions that other people have written, and they encounter problems like the ones that George described and problems like the one that I just described, namely that the questions that they download are probably bad. So all of these things are, are challenges, and they kind of culminate in yet another challenge, which is that boy, it's just it's just not very pleasant to deal with these these cards. They feel so dry and atomized and dissociated, generally speaking. And yet, really great folks don't. So I'll, I'll stop blabbering about background and describe quantum country now. Quantum country is, is an attempt at a, at a novel medium which interleaves narrative prose with elements inspired by spaced repetition. And so in some sense, well, let, let me describe functionally what, what happens. So you, you read prose for, say, a few minutes, a same kind of narrative explanation of a phenomenon here in quantum computation that you might find in a well, probably not in a textbook, but I don't know. Say, say in a, a really good explanation from a friend, hopefully. And then you answer some quick questions about, about what you just read. And you, you don't answer by filling in a blank or choosing multiple choice. Much like George's system, you, you just kind of, it's meant to be a two-second interaction. Hey, why is this uh, a poor type of matter to represent a qubit? You can say, reveal the answer. It's like, oh, well, because, I don't know. And then... You just ask yourself, like, oh, yeah, did you, did you remember that or didn't you? And just swipe left, swipe right, done. So it's a really lightweight interaction. And it is interleaved with every few minutes of reading. So you read for a few minutes, and then you have this interaction. And it's providing a whole bunch of metacognitive support at this point. So one thing we hear from readers, for instance, is, like, I read a section, and then I did this thing. And, like, oh, I realized I didn't. I, I guess I wasn't paying attention to this section at all. And a bunch of the executive function here is supplied. I mean, so, so if you finish a section, you do this, and you... you realize you didn't really absorb anything, like, okay, you don't really have to make that complex a plan. You just didn't remember words that you just read. So like, go back and reread it. That, that's a fairly low-level, easy plan to achieve. But um, another interesting thing is that if you forget something, then as you keep reading, the card that you forgot is going to come back again in the next section. And then when you finish reading the essay, you know, you'll get some emails and we'll, we'll kind of do the normal space repetition thing, which I won't go into detail around. We have some interesting stuff around progress representation. But, you know, you'll... Um, and it's funny how this is like, take this for granted at this point, because we're, we're kind of comparing different spaced repetition systems. But like the other spaced repetition systems, you'll durably remember all of it forever. A key difference is that you didn't have to write the cards, because we wrote them for you. And at least relatively speaking, we're really good at writing them. So that's good. But unlike downloading a deck of someone else's cards, which in our experience doesn't really work for anything where the knowledge is highly connective, you 
we're first introduced to that material in the context of a narrative structure. And so you, you get the benefit of maybe not having to write the cards with also the benefits of when you wrote them yourself, uh, having written them in this more linearized sequential context. Okay, I'll, I'll pause there. Lots of things I could say about quantum country. Totally. To me, it's quite clear what George and I are trying to achieve, right? We're, we're trying to help students who we've taught in the past. We, you know, have, we might have students in mind when we think about how to use design dendro or, or use, um, use Anki, helping them to better retain information now, better learn things, and then hopefully, as George said, become more robust and motivated learners beyond formal education. Mm-hmm. In terms of what you're trying to achieve with quantum country, what, what's that? Yeah, a couple levels of granularity. Maybe like most local. It's trying to prove out a concept. And in some sense, it's trying to defy Gwern. There's maybe like 100,000, we think, maybe up to a million. It's that order of magnitude. Serious users of spaced repetition. And yet there's order of hundreds of millions of knowledge workers. And that discrepancy doesn't make any sense. So can we make something where, you know, basically everybody who tries this, who is actually interested in learning quantum computing, they find it extremely valuable and they stick with it. And lo and behold, they end up with better retention than any undergrad does in a very expensive class. That's kind of a very local aspiration. Somewhat meta to that is, can we essentially lower the bar to entering this field? And somewhat meta to that is, this website is just a laboratory. I mean, we're running experiments all the time. Like a really nice thing is that we have kind of a continuous pool of new readers and you know, they see different things. So it's a place for us to learn about media design. What are some of the questions you're trying to answer right now? Because you keep on referring to quantum country as research. So what are you trying to work out? What's memory for anyway? You know, an interesting thing in all this discussion about space repetition is, is that it, it kind of presupposes the value of memory. And, you know, we, we, we all have intuitions about that. Intermittently, you'll, you'll meet someone and try to talk to them about space repetition and they'll say like, well, you know, that, that's just for remembering stuff. And like, that doesn't seem like what's important. You know, really great artists and creatives, like, you know, they, they don't need to remember a bunch of stuff. And, you know, we could say stuff to argue about that. It's really, it's, it's not terribly clear exactly what the disposition is. How important is memory anyway? To what degree does it matter? How does it matter? How cheap can it be made? What does it look like if memory is just a solved problem? Like, how, how do your concerns when it comes to engaging with media change when remembering the content you're reading is just completely trivial? Like, right now, we, I mean, we have data about this. So, like, people are able to achieve two months of demonstrated retention on all of the material in the first chapter of the text. So what that means is in the course of their studies for practically all of the questions in the first chapter, which is 112 of them, these students have experienced the situation where it has been two months since they've been asked to remember this question, and then they successfully remembered it. And the the marginal cost to them on top of the original reading time of achieving that state was under 50%. It varies much. So that's interesting. If you spend two hours reading a thing for an additional hour, you can you know, have months go by and you still remember all of it, like all fine details perfectly. Like what happens if you get that down to 5% and just anything you find even slightly interesting, you know, you have to write the cards. Like you just you know, do this thing for a few minutes when you're waiting for the bus and you remember all of it. How does that change the way that you relate to not just learning stuff, but doing stuff? Okay. So the question I asked that prompted the answer was what questions are you trying to answer? 
what you gave us there was very like very broad and very interesting interrelationship <laughs> about the cost of knowledge and the value of memory and sure, things like sure, that. Sure. Can you can you tighten that down for us to a certain thing that you were trying to determine? Yeah. Okay. So there's experiments that we're running now. One one of the topics that I've been really investing in in the last few months is representations of progress. A couple observations. Existing space repetition systems basically don't try to represent progress. So they represent it very shallowly. So it's like you show up every day, you do what you're told, and then you go away. I mean, like that's kind of the model you see. You know, maybe the card tells you like, oh, you know, this card, if you mark it correct, you're not going to see it for a month. It's very, it's very shallow. So one of the practices that I have as a system developers, I speak to users very regularly. And one very interesting thing that I notice is that there's this massive gap between the emotional sense that people have of their journey, their experience with this material on the one hand, and the analytical fact that I can see from the data that we have about their experience. So I'll speak to someone who, like, they have durably memorized fine details of all this knowledge in quantum computation, like more so than many first, second year graduate students in the topic. And and yet, like, their emotional relationship to that is kind of so-so. So we've been developing, like, a whole bunch of new representations to try to bring a sense of progress and journey to memory systems. And so we have lots of questions around the way that people emotionally relate to not just those representations, but the process of becoming more fluent in memory in general with topics. That's very interesting. And that's actually an experience I've had in the class with students as well, because when we use Anki to some of them, if I don't, you know, introduce it as a, as a cognitive strategy, if I, if I don't explain what we're doing, you know, in the first year of using it, I had some students on feedback forms writing, I feel like we're just memorizing lots of unrelated facts kind of a thing. And that, that caused me to come back in the classroom, give them a big presentation, explain everything I was doing, which I probably should have done at the start. But often people don't understand how, you know, Lodging all this stuff in long-term memory makes it so much easier to make the connections. So that's really interesting. And I think, you know, when we talk about barriers to people getting involved with space repetition, you're hitting on something really key. And I'll also say that working through quantum country, I found it was doing that very effectively. You know, you even have like metacognitive sections where you step back and talk about space repetition, explain it to people. And then the interface, when the emails come through, you have little graphs that show you when content's going to come back and how well you've remembered it and things like that. So I'd say that makes sense that that's something you're exploring and it's great you're already making measurable progress in, in terms of that. So George, just then Andy referred to the kind of idea, does memory matter? Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think this is a really fundamental question when talking about space repetition because like right from the start it can turn people off if you go straight into thinking about this is how you can memorize it and it's good for memory and you'll remember forever. But then that's the question that sort of, there's an assumption there that they care about memory. Totally. So the way I like to think of it is to focus on not just, okay, you're remembering this, but what benefits do you get from remembering it? And I think one of the most non-intuitive but important benefits is that when you remember the basics, it makes it much easier to learn the advanced stuff. So if you're a teacher in the classroom and you're teaching maths at the start of the year and at the end of the year you're building on that maths, normally the students are going to have forgotten it 
And it's very, it's like the status quo is for you as a teacher to go through that initial maths, the stuff you learned at the start of the year, and then the new maths, which is really just overloading students' working memory. So what the place of memory is in learning is primarily you learn in layers, you build a layer and you come back later and you can build on it. If you don't have that initial layer, you're always just running on a treadmill and just standing in the same spot. It feels like you're going somewhere, but you're not really going anywhere. So you're not actually building knowledge for the long term. I think so far in this discussion, we've managed to highlight that there's a real potential in this software, in this approach. And both of you have spoken about the massive gap between the possibilities here and the people working kind of knowledge-based areas who just aren't utilizing it and how that's such a loss and that's holding individuals back and it's hold, holding our collective progress back significantly also. But I would say that I haven't heard yet today, and I don't have one myself, a very convincing, compelling kind of to-market strategy, should I say, or theory of change in terms of how humanity, to go big, is going to transition to effectively integrating this more broadly. I'm curious to hear what each of you has to say in, in relation to that. Maybe, maybe we can start with you, Andy. Sure, two perspectives to share. First, it's not very hard for me, given the experiences with quantum country and the data that we're already seeing, to imagine a world where this technology, a much better version of it, I shouldn't say the technology, these design concepts, a better version of these design concepts, is platformized. And anything interesting that you might care to read has these interactions built in so that your your marginal cost as a, as a reader to durably remember everything from what you read is really quite low and it just becomes something that you might choose to do quite readily. Now, I, I view that as a, as a step. And yet another perspective that I find quite interesting is one where if we look at the applications which ship with our operating system, Many of them stem back to this set of ideas from the 60s around uh, digital personal knowledge management systems that you should have a address book, that you should have a calendar, a mail client, and so on. It's not difficult for me to imagine memory systems becoming part of that, and not just memory systems, but kind of broader knowledge accretion and ontology systems, which we haven't discussed in detail here, but which... Dender kind of alludes to with these progressively rewritten notes, and which I've sort of alluded to with my comments on, on note systems. Anyway, in that world, yes, you might, at low cost, remember everything from things you found interesting. And additionally, you would have the cognitive supports to develop your own insights using many of the same approaches. Some of the most powerful applications of spaced repetition in my own life are not for remembering anything that anyone else has ever written, uh, but rather are in developing my own ideas. So George, in, in terms of bringing these ideas to market or having a, a theory of change, what are your thoughts? One thing Andy alluded to earlier is the problem of coming in with a solution and looking for a problem. Coming in with the technology and saying this works 
and then trying to look for places to use it. It's like you're walking around with a hammer and everything's a nail. So I'm going to maybe answer another question that you might have also been ready to ask me, which is what advice would I give to my earlier self working in spaced repetition? The the key, I think, to bring it to market is to look for the problems that people are already dealing with, the things they're already trying to learn, the content they're already trying to master. Look for the people. There's so many people who are actually trying to learn. So no matter how many people you can find who are reading nonfiction books for the entertainment value, there's always, always going to be people who are out there in the world trying to learn things because they need it for their job, because they're writing a book because they're trying to solve a problem in their field. And it's to those people that I think we need to go and say, you're already trying to do this. Here's just a way that you can get there faster and more reliably. And then I also think just to add to that, that once again, we reach a critical mass of people using more effective methods, that's just going to become necessary for everyone else to just basically keep up with that progress. Could you try to paint? Maybe you haven't got one, but could you try to paint a more vivid picture of the future where where this these concepts are more tangibly um, and concretely kind of embedded within life? I think the first half of what I described, does that feel relatively tangible? It's like, like quantum country, but for everything. Is that sufficient? Yeah. I guess what that's kind of bringing to mind for me is like, there's already a massive corpus of information in the world, right? There's all these ancient yeah. books and things like that. Sure. Does that mean that we need to convert them all into SRS resources? Yeah, I think I think you'll have kind of, you know, genius.com style hypothesis style layers on top of pre-existing things with varying degrees of quality. You may choose to rewrite some of these questions. Yeah. For for whatever reason that that half is pretty easy for me to imagine. And and, and the that, fun, that does that does. And I guess the final question I have for you Andy is what if people don't want to learn? What if the reason that we read books isn't to kind of get all these ideas in our head and retain them for the long term? What if we just want to be entertained? Or what if we just want to be able to tell our friends that we read that interesting book? Or, or you know, because the, the challenge of, you know, committing to space repetition is a massive commitment, even though it's a small amount of time, the amount of effort it takes to sit there and try to remember something is quite large. Right. So, what's your response to that? Yeah, I love it. I mean, this really alludes to my earlier comments about education versus doing what has meaning. I don't really care about learning qua learning. In fact, I'm quite skeptical of objectives, which are like learning is the ultimate goal, not an instrumental goal. For me, that's a red flag. So, if someone's reading a book to be entertained, great, enjoy. I'm interested in helping people for whom they're reading the book for a particular purpose that's meaningful to them, uh, and they find that their experience is uh, not achieving that purpose. Okay. And so uh, for, for me, like, if people don't want to learn, that's fine. Um, they probably do want to do things. Insofar as they want to do original creative work, these ideas will probably be relevant to that work. I agree. Andy just painted a kind of a broad picture of how the future might look in terms of people engaging with space repetition software. Does 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 your your vision look look any different from Andy's? Yeah, I think 
with the existing books and the existing media that's already out there, I think there will be layers built on top of that. But I also think that with an approach like Dendro, you don't really need that. So in terms of the fundamental uh, premise that we started this whole podcast with, which was why books don't work, I would actually both agree and disagree with that. So I agree that there's no good cognitive model underlying books, but I also think that it's possible as a reader through using tools like Dendro or Supermemo or Anki that you can actually read those books in a way where they do work. And so I don't think we necessarily need to rewrite all the books in existence in order to make this work. In terms of how I see the world in, say, 10 years' time when space repetition is used by everyone, where I don't know if that's actually going to be the case, but if I could paint a utopia, I think this is something where it, it will come from the top down. The people, not actually in school, but people, the knowledge workers in industry will be using this, and then the universities will notice and say, well, actually, this is a more effective way of doing it. And then the schools will notice and say, actually, this is the more effective way of doing it. And so I think it's going to trickle down that way. And so in 10 years time, it might not be in schools yet, but I think it will be out there in the industry where when people want to learn, they're going to be using these techniques. So that question I just asked Andy was um, very much about what if people just don't want to learn? I'd like to turn it around a little bit and, and talk, talk, give you an opportunity, George, to talk to the people who do really want to learn. Andy's quantum country approach builds the cards for people. And you previously alluded to how you think it's really beneficial for people to, to write their own cards. So for any listeners out there who are maybe looking to get into Anki or Supermemo or Dendro or something like that, a uh, program where people are required to make their own cards or have the opportunity to, what advice would you have for people doing that? What makes a good card? Well, Piotr Wozniak who created Supermemo, has this article called The 20 Rules of Formatting Knowledge, which is a really great overview of all the different things that you got to think about when you're making good cards. But if I was to distill those things just into a couple of guidelines or basic rules, I would say the very first thing is to make sure that you have a good understanding and a good context for what you're learning. So you're not just trying to memorize something arbitrary. If you try and memorize a random number or just some random sounds or words, then you're going to have difficulty with that compared to if you try and remember a really interesting idea that you learned today, that's going to be much easier to remember. So the first most important thing is memory is just a snapshot. So if you have a good understanding, you're going to take a snapshot of a good understanding. And if you, are, you have a shallow understanding, you're going to take a snapshot of that shallow understanding. So to make a good flashcard, First, make sure that you actually understand what you're trying to remember. The second thing is keep the flashcards really simple. So this isn't immediately obvious at the start because you think, well, the simpler they are, the more mechanical they are, the more rote they are. But actually, that might only be true in short-term memory. In long-term memory, it's the opposite thing is the case. A good analogy for this is if you have a road network, you have a lot of roads in the city intersecting and crossing over each other and going all different places. You can actually build that road network bigger one road at a time. So you can go and do some roadworks on, on, a, on a road on the east side and you can be working on that today and then tomorrow that's fixed up and you go work on a road on the west side and you just work on these roads one at a time, each of these links, and that way you can build up a really rich network. It's the same thing with memory. 
instead of trying to remember 10 things with one card or even three things with one card, just remember one detail, one important thing that matters to you with one card and put the extra information in extra cards. So just to summarize, the two rules that I would give are make sure you're learning something meaningful and make sure your cards are really, really simple. Some closing questions for you, Andy. What advice would you give to your earlier entrepreneurial self? I'm kind of picking a time frame here. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Let let us know uh, which which phase of your career. Look, maybe I'm even maybe maybe I'm even thinking if you were to think back to when you started this space repetition journey, and you oh, were, okay. and you were to give some advice to yourself when you're setting out there. What what would that be? Sure. Yeah, I mean that was comparatively recent. I, I guess my advice would be remembering facts is the least interesting part of this idea. Okay. And and is that is that a trap that you'd say you fell into at the very start? It's a trap to to some degree I'm still in. Great. I'd love to explore that more, but we've um we're 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 running short on time. What advice would you have for your earlier self, George, when you think back to yourself getting getting first stuck into space repetition, either individually or in the classroom? So yeah, as I said before, I think the most important thing is if you as someone trying to help somebody else with this tool is not just to plonk it in front of them and say, use spaced repetition, it's good for you, but to actually see what are they trying to learn? What are the problems they're trying to solve? Maybe they're reading a book and most of it's entertainment, but one bit is for learning. That's the bit where you can help them. And so that's the advice I would give to my earlier self is actually when speaking to people and when trying to work through them and find a way for them to use spaced repetition, focus everything on what is the problem. And sometimes spaced repetition will not be the solution there. It might not be the best answer. So that will make sure that when you do use it, it actually adds value. We have touched on this in a lot of ways, but the next question we usually ask people is, what's your information diet like? But maybe if you could just, you know, give the names of a few people who you find their work has had a large influence on you. You've mentioned a couple of books today, but if people want to kind of understand more about what drives your mm-hmm. philosophy, what, what could people dip into? Right. So, because my, I don't know, my, my original cultural affiliation is more tech, I, I guess I can share some things from that perspective that listeners might be less likely to have seen. These perspectives about augmenting human cognition they date back to the very early days of tech before there were personal computers. I am forever inspired by Vannevar Bush's, as we may think, where in 1945 he foresaw, you know, arguably the World Wide Web and wikis and databases, digital cameras, a hundred other things by Engelbart's work, Douglas Engelbart's work, Augmenting Human Intellect in particular, <clears throat> by Alan Kay's A Personal Computer for Children of All Ages, where in 1970, he went to a trade show where he saw um, the first displayed LCD displays uh, that had ever existed, flat panel. And on the plane home, he drew an iPad. It's a pretty magical paper. Maybe I'll stop there from the tech side. 
more contemporarily in tech. Uh, for those viewers who haven't seen the work of Brett Victor, um, it is probably the most direct contemporary influence uh, for my work. And my colleague, Michael Nielsen, um, has also been a, and continues to be a, a great influence on my work. And what's your information diet like, George? Any any recommendations for people or things, or share, please share with us things that you found particularly influential in your thinking? Sure. So when I started using SuperMemo back in 2006, I also came across a whole heap of articles written by Pyotr Wozniak, who makes SuperMemo. And I found those articles very useful in terms of explaining the why of not just spaced repetition, but incremental learning and interleaving and a lot of other related concepts. So he's got a lot of different articles. The ones on spaced repetition and incremental reading I particularly recommend. There's a couple of books that I found useful. And again, the way that I, I've made those books work for me is by importing notes into Dendron Supermemo and that way actually engaging with them over the long term. The useful books I found have been one by Daniel Willingham, why don't students like school? Which the answer to that question is, is not very effective for learning, but here's a few ways that we can make it effective. There's another book around spaced repetition and interleaving called Make It Stick. Unfortunately, I don't remember the author's names, but it's a simple title, so you'll easily be able to find it. And finally, two experts in the field are Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, who focus a lot of their work on spaced repetition and interleaving in an academic setting. So they've published some well-known articles that you can easily find online as well. Great. We'll link to all those things. And also, I know Craig Barton's had Robert and Elizabeth Bjork on his math podcast, so we'll link to that one as well. What are you currently excited about, Andy? Mm, I'm excited about so many things. Um, in, uh, in about a week, uh, Michael and I will be publishing large essay, monograph, I, I don't know what the right word is, a piece that we've been working on for uh, five or six months. Um, currently titled, How Can We Develop Transformative Technologies for Thought? Which is trying to answer a whole bunch of the meta questions in this space. As I say, these ideas stretch back to the 60s, 40s. Why has there been so little progress? Why does it seem that no one's working on this? What are the structural and institutional forces which make that difficult? What, I, what do we know that our predecessors didn't know and which others attempting to make progress here today don't know. What are those powerful ideas? I'm really excited about this piece. So, uh, you know, perhaps by the time this, this podcast is published, that will be available and it can be linked from the show notes or something like this. We will definitely do that. That sounds like a fantastic paper. But you, George, what are you currently excited about? So, right now, I started Dendro halfway through last year and it's gotten to the point where I have the first working sort of prototype that's being used by a few people now. And I'm looking to really do what Andy's been doing with Quantum Country and just expand that pool of, of users and testers out to people who are doing research and academic work and professional work and actually getting a lot more feedback on, on that. And alongside that work, I have started doing a fair bit of writing on my blog so maybe we can link to that. But that writing surrounds some of my broader ideas about education and about how 
spaced repetition and dendro and interleaving and all these things can work together to make learning more effective and therefore more enjoyable. Any last calls to action for listeners or things you'd like people to go away and do? No, no, that's that's not for me to say. <laughs> Good on you, Andy. So Andy Andy didn't have any calls to action, um, George, but do you have any calls to action for listeners, things you'd like them to go away today and, and, and do or things they might like to do, if we could phrase it that way? Sure. I think if anyone who's listening and has listened this far is interested in using spaced repetition in their classroom or in their school, what is the common factor between us three is that Andy you and I have all actually used spaced repetition ourselves before trying to sort of chuck it at anyone else. So I think that's really useful and a really good first step is if you found any of this useful and interesting, if you're thinking of using it with other people, try it out for yourself. There's Andy's Quantum Country is free, Anki is free, Dendro is free. They're all easy ways to get on there and actually try these ideas firsthand. And I would say if you do try spaced repetition, just keep in mind it's for long-term learning. So you will need to go back over a number of weeks. Otherwise, you just won't see the effects. Totally. And I, and I would definitely second that. I mean, I've, I've given a few presentations at conference and things like that on Anki. And often teachers come up to me and say, oh, how do I use this in my, in my classroom? My answer is always use it yourself first. Use it for six months, if not a year yourself first. Because there's so many intricacies. Even things like backing up one of my colleagues use Anki, but didn't know how to back it up. And then one day all his cards got corrupt and there was six months of space repetition down the drain, unfortunately. So I, I can't emphasize enough, as George just said, give it a go yourself. George Zonios and Andy Matushek, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a really interesting chat. It's been probably as theoretical, if not more theoretical than a lot of the previous discussions. And to me, it's a really interesting place that we're at. We're kind of at the cusp of this area of research and practice that holds what I see is some incredibly low-hanging fruit for education more broadly. And it's really, well, first of all, I was really excited to get together today three people who are really passionate about space repetition approaches to learning. And I hope that this podcast can act as a catalyst for more teachers and more individuals to get involved with SRS and try it out. And Andy will um, link to your forthcoming article, uh, which will be out by the time that this podcast comes out. And George, please keep us abreast of any developments with Dendro. And I'm sure we'll put your contact details on the website if any teachers want to get in touch and, and learn more about that. So Andy and George, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation, folks. And, and George, it was, it was nice to meet you too. Yeah, same. Yeah, very interesting conversation. And love your work on uh, Quantum Country and, and your articles as well. Oh, it's yeah. kind. I'll be, I'll be looking forward to that next one as well. That's very kind. Definitely agree. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Andy Matushak and George Zonios. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. And as mentioned during the intro, if you'd like to become a patron and support the ongoing production of the show, just go to ollilovell.com and click the Patreon button or go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to sign up. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you've got something out of it. And further, I'd be super interested to hear from any listeners who, after the show, decide to have a go at utilizing space repetition software for their own learning or in their own classrooms. If you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or 
If you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other E-Trilla episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thank you for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.